my name is Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast and I'm just going to be doing, there's not going to be a review so much on this episode today because I wanted to instead really um, talk about documentary films and it was inspired by um, the September edition of Sight and Sound magazine in which they did a poll of the greatest documentaries of all time by asking filmmakers and critics and it seemed just to be a good good way for me to kind of talk about this subject because I want to talk about the poll and I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, how I feel about documentary film and kind of kind of one of the reasons why I love doc well some of some of the reasons why I love documentary films and kind of how they've kind of um, been part of my life since I've been kind of into film and television and I quite enjoy um, these sight and sound polls um, there isn't enough discourse I don't think on documentary film and I'm glad that they've actually done this because a couple of years ago we had kind of their 100 greatest films poll again and um what I enjoy about these lists is that I think they, they shouldn't be taken very seriously. I think they're there to kind of generate um, debates. And I think you can you can look at those the films that make those top tens and you can kind of think of legitimate reasons why other films should be in there. I mean, for example, I mean, they had last time Vertigo was nominated as the or voted the best film. And um, I mean, I don't even think that's Hitchcock's best film. That's that's me shadow of a doubt. And. You know, I went back and I watched Vertigo again and I was kind of, I wasn't unimpressed by it, but I certainly wasn't kind of overawed by it again. I haven't, haven't seen it a few times. And that, that, that's why I think I like this because cause I think in a way that's the point of them really. You, They should be there to generate debate and they should get people talking and hopefully they should get people uh, viewing more of a wider variety of films, which sadly doesn't seem to really happen a great deal. I think before I kind of start talking about the sight and sound list, I'm going to talk a little bit about kind of my passion for this genre and why it's such an important part of my film watching life. And I've noticed that every year I do my time top ten list, and I've, you know for the past two or three years I've been doing it a top ten show. And every year there will be documentaries in them. Some of them come quite close to being my favourite films of the year, and more often than not, I find documentary film to be a lot more satisfying than a lot of the fictional films I see um take for example I don't know last year's story we tell um which took a simple tale of a woman trying to ascertain who her real father was and made a documentary film that actually kind of deconstructed film and story itself it was wonderfully inventing um very moving and it kind of left me with a kind of a real kind of a deep appreciation for it um for days afterwards and I've gone back to stories we tell and it it it's not so much one of those films that's kind of ruined by certain when, when you kind of certain things are revealed to you and I've gone back and just watched it again with kind of like a filmmaker's hat on and it really is I, I think a brilliantly constructed film it, it was as imaginative and as groundbreaking as anything I've seen in fictional filmmaking and, and it you know, changed the way in which I kind of thought about the genre and it's, you know, it's, it's, there's no excuse not to see it now I think if you live in Britain actually it's out on Netflix and uh, I've managed to coax a few people into seeing it and, and, and all have said the same thing they were just pleasantly surprised and amazed by it and and what frustrates me a, a great deal is the fact that you can have films like this and yet nobody really seems to kind of pay much attention to them yeah, people don't really kind of talk about these films outside, I think, kind of film critic circles and more discerning cinema goers. And it, it's a real pity because 
when you have a film like this that's so brilliantly original, why you know why go and watch Kingdom of the Crystal Skull again and then take to Facebook to moan about and lament how such a turgid film was made in the first place and you know why Bradley Cooper shouldn't play the Indian in the remakes etc you know just etc etc and it's it's strange because I, I look at people's viewing habits um, through Letterbox and the the lack of documentaries in people's film diets is quite sad and it's hardly surprising to me in many ways but it also frustrates me because when I do see the people kind of delving into films such as the act of killing they they tend to give them kind of like five star glowing reviews and I'm not not saying the act of killing obviously it's an extremely hard film to get through but it, it just seems to me that people are kind of keeping themselves really in the dark when there is such a wealth of great films to tuck into, and it's a. Re- I hope really things like kind of this episode, perhaps, and things like the Sight and Sound poll will kind of like jog a few people into action, and kind of get them watching more films. But really, I think it's a case of they're simply missing out. And my love affair with the genre started when I was quite young, and I think it really comes back down to the fact that when I was a child growing up, I, I had a kind of fascination with history and science, and. I seem to recall I had kind of a large book that had pictures of the Voyager space missions to kind of Jupiter and Saturn and those pictures used to actually amaze me and they didn't seem real in a way and I couldn't fathom how you could have kind of planets that were made of gas and not rocks and I, and I wanted to know more and this was really kind of in the early 90s where there was a raft of really brilliantly made documentaries on science and history especially on bbc2 and channel 4 and normally it was kind of like on a thursday either thursday evening or kind of sunday afternoon but on channel 4 there was equinox which kind of frequently delve into the reaches of space for frankly kind of mind-boggling trips around the solar system and kind of giving these kind of tantalizing stories that there might be kind of life on one of the moons of jupiter and invariably they would be narrated by people like john hurt and they would have dare I say, a kind of a cinematic grandeur to them that really kind of captivated my imagination. And on BBC Two, we had programmes like Time Watch, which would kind of shine a light into kind of little kind of historical incidents that perhaps had kind of fallen by the wayside over the years. And they were really well-constructed films and told really, over the course of an hour, really kind of tight, concise narrative stories. And it, it was a real, it was a kind of a gift, really. And we were one of the first houses I know to um, have Sky installed. And of course, along that, you had the kind of Discovery Channel, which I think the Discovery Channel really has gone downhill actually in recent years. But uh, in those early early kind of nineties, that too had a lot of kind of programs being made over in America and a lot of stuff that was commissioned in Britain. And it was just the quality of the historical program. It was was really quite high and. I was lucky enough to go to a school where I really, I loved going to school and our teachers were fantastic because they kind of really encouraged us to kind of delve deeper into topics that interested us. And of course, when I started doing kind of media studies, we had um, an entire unit based on documentary films. And it was here that I got introduced to people like kind of John Grierson at the GPO film unit, you know, Robert Flaherty, John Pilger. Um, and we, we kind of saw kind of masterpiece films like Shoah and Roger and Me. And I think even at the age of 16, there was something about those Grierson films that really kind of captivated me because the kind of the somber tone of them and that kind of striking imagery 
promoted further explanation of the filmmakers such as Eisenstein and I just going to give a quick mention out to some of the BFI um, Blu-ray releases that have gone out in recent months um, really well worth picking up and um, the Soviet Connection is one which is kind of talked about John Grierson and has kind of links back to these kind of films that were being made in the Soviet Union time that influenced them in fact it's called the Soviet Influence actually um, especially the three volumes of um, Humphrey Jennings films um, no relation but um, all rather brilliant and I, I, it was it was a school or college or whatever it was. I went to well, my secondary school became my college, and I, it was there I decided I was going to pursue kind of go to university and study film. And when I went to university, I did as many modules as I could on documentaries, and it was here I got kind of introduced to even more really things like kind of Man with a Movie Camera, Chronicle of a Summer, just to name but a couple. And I noticed that I began to admire the work of a selection of documentary auteurs such as Michael Moore, Errol Morris, Alex Gibney. Um, Werner Herzog to an extent, uh, the Maysales brothers, D.A. Pennebaker, um, Jean Roche, and I found that I was really interested in directors who worked in both in fictional and documentary mediums, and let's not forget, you know, like, you know, Martin Scorsese frequently makes documentaries, you know, Jean-Luc Godard did, obviously Werner Herzog kind of comes in and out of the genre, and um, from someone who wants to be a director, and who, well, some that's well, some, what I do to an extent, um, I've always been. In, I've always wanted to work in as many mediums as I possibly could, and it, it does surprise me um, that not more directors kind of straddle different forms of cinema. I mean, um, I, I don't necessarily. Agree. Mark, Mark Cousins make a statement in this episode of Sight and Sound in which he says that the documentary is the purest form of cinema, and I, I, I don't really think. Um, I don't agree necessarily with that statement, but I think it's it's interesting when you see directors kind of trying their hand at both because it must be such a kind of a challenge kind of creatively to, to do it and it's, it's a shame that, yeah, we haven't seen kind of more people do it I'd, li- I'd like to see kind of you know Ridley Scott try and make a documentary I'd like to see Steven Spielberg perhaps even even go down that road I mean one one person who I, a filmmaker who I really do enjoy is uh, Kevin McDonald because uh, yeah, he, he's, his documentary output is as um, frequent as his film output and he's a re- I think he's a really underrated filmmaker Kevin McDonald and I was thinking of doing a um, an episode on him one day because uh, I was looking at his filmography the other day and I couldn't think of a film in there that I hadn't seen that I didn't enjoy so of course it isn't just film um, where I kind of focus my kind of documentary viewing attention obviously I, I mentioned at the beginning that that it was television really that kind of kick-started this obsession for me and I'm a recent convert to the films of Ken Burns and I say convert, I've heard of him before and I I just hadn't seen any of his films and it all kind of started off when I realised I didn't really know very much about the American Civil War and I decided I would kind of um, delve into his Civil War series and of course it's kind of the temple release which everyone kind of knows so well but I was pretty much captivated and actually I, I, I downloaded all 90 hours of Shelby Foote's narrative of the Civil War afterwards because I was so taken with him but of all the films that I've watched of Ken Burns, I'm so far yet to watch a film of his which hasn't not captivated me, and I've not found incredibly moving. I've just started his um, series on the national parks in America. You think you know, that might be quite a boring subject, but 
That's the thing about Ken Burns is that he makes such compelling narrative-driven films that I think he really is perhaps one of my favourite kind of directors working. He's certainly, you know, an auteur. He has a very, very distinct style, which I know a lot of people don't like. But for me, it just seems to work every time. And I like the fact that he works exclusively in television. Well, it kind of gives him the time to tell his stories and... I know he's got a film coming out about the Roosevelt's and I was really pleased when I saw it, it was like 18 hours long. That, that, that's just going to be heaven for me, you know, it's going to be a nice weekend of watching another great slice of American history. And obviously we have people like David Attenborough, um, whose, whose work takes up an entire shelf um, in my house. And although he isn't so much the director of these episodes, conceptually they are very much his and he is very much the star of the show and I think it would be impossible really for him to direct it because the way in which those story, those those documentaries are made, you have kind of crews all over the world, but he's certainly the creative force behind them. And you know, this is this is a person who who has really fundamentally expanded our understanding of the natural world. And in, in my humble opinion, I think he's one of the most important figures in British history and his work ranks amongst those of Shakespeare. And I say that with any kind of, without any sort of like, irony or sarcasm and indeed I think the BBC in recent years has produced some sublime television I was a uh, there was an episode where I, I a couple of years ago I think where I, I said that I used to despise Brian Cox and then I actually watched Wonders series and uh, yeah I think they're, they're fantastic um, pieces of television and um, they really I've recently brought a projector and I, I, I was kind of watching a few of them just to kind of test the bulb out and things like that and they have a really wonderful cinematic quality with a great score by um, Sheridan Tung and some great effects and I think Brian Cox kind of very much follows in that tradition of the kind of the presenter being on screen that's a lot of those BBC TV series where essentially they are kind of like visual lectures and I, I suppose kind of wonders that the wonders series is a bit more kind of glossy than most but and also, I think we have a fantastic back catalogue of documentaries on film. I'm amazed how many times I can sit through things like The World at War and The Ascent of Man and The Great War and Civilization. And when those kind of winter months begin, I also find these are kind of the perfect accompaniments on a Sunday to kind of a, a nice glass of whiskey and uh, the howling wind outside. And it's kind of amen really to the kind of the DVD box set era because the price point at which you can pick these kind of things up really beggars for leaf. I mean, for £15, you can pick up some shows like kind of The Ascent of Man and The World at War. And I mean, when I bought The World at War on VHS, it cost me upward of £80. And now you can pick up the DVD or the Blu-ray at least for as little as 20 quid. And yes, there was actually an episode I did on The World at War, which I've taken off the feed and is going to be given a special edition remastering treatment because I did not do it justice at all and I hated that episode. But I'm going to go back to it and um, you will hear in that episode why you shouldn't pick up the newly remastered versions of the DVD and Blu-ray. Get the old ones if you can, they're dead cheap. Um, but you know, also with the kind of the rise of Netflix, um, the BBC are beginning to add more and more of their back catalogue too, which can only be a good thing. And I, I certainly hope that far more people begin to discover some of these shows and to preach them as much as I do. Yet really, in recent years, I've become more and more frustrated with the lack of discourse and critical discussion that people have on documentaries, especially ones which have a theatrical release. And 
I think it comes from how we perceive cinema. For, for many, cinema means fictional films, and those particularly made in North America. It's a narrow-minded way of approaching the medium and one results that in a near-continuous conversation involving a dissection of a small number of films over and over again. And I believe there are certain preconceptions of documentaries that stop people from embracing the medium. And firstly, I don't think people see them as being cinematic. And the idea of paying for something that is not fictional is a mental block that, for some, is simply too hard to get their head around. Documentaries were born in cinemas, it is their natural home, yet with the rise of television, the amount of content made for it, the distinction between the two has become blurred. Seeing a documentary at the film has a kind of paying for TV factor about it. However, I can test that people are simply depriving themselves of some incredible entertainment by doing so. I kind of another counter to this is the sheer cinematic quality of some documentary films. Last year's The Gatekeepers was a widescreen high-tech thriller of a documentary about the Israeli secret services. In fact, one of my key issues with it was the fact that I felt it was being a little too flashy and at time resembling kind of an episode of 24. And indeed, the kind of marketing actually used a quote from one critic who called it the zero dark 30 of documentaries. Likewise, The Imposter was a truly jaw-dropping story featuring, again, a huge widescreen frame and huge amounts of reenacted action and an almost endless amount of filters and stylized angles to weave a tale so as incredible as any fictional film. And having seen both at the, on, the, on the big screen and again on the small screen, part of the experience was that theatrical outing for me and the immersive frame and the intricate plots made in both cases for a genuinely exciting trip to the cinema. And, and I'm not saying it's really you, know, you need a widescreen frame to be cinematic. Of, of, of course, I'm not saying that. But there's plenty of films made that have... There's plenty of kind of biopics that come out, things like Marley and Beware of Mr. Baker, that are just as rewarding. And in the case of Marley, it's one of those films where it was over kind of two hours long, but I could have quite happily sat there in the cinema for another hour. And I think one of the other problems comes distribution. And this is really one of the biggest issues related to documentary films. They simply don't get enough screen time. Um, in Manchester, we have one art house cinema with three screens and many, many other multiplexes all vying for people's customers to come and watch the new crop of Hollywood films. And the corner house has quite a kind of a, a strict policy, really, where if a film comes out and no one goes and watch it, it'll be pulled for a week after a week. And I mean, to give you an example, uh, The Great Beauty um, played for it played for seven days in Manchester. Not enough people went and saw it. And that was it. And yeah, that film won, won an Oscar and it was brilliant as well to boot. So the window, therefore, for seeing such films is severely limited. And I would imagine it's a similar case the world over. This is despite the fact that many of the films have major studios behind them, people like you know, Sony Classics and Universal. And it's a slightly tiresome debate, but with so many screens, surely the local multiplex could cater for more niche audiences and have at least two showing something a bit different. But you know, you know, digital projection has reduced the cost of distributing dramatically. So I, like it comes, I think it comes down to risk. Why only make 100 pounds per screen when you can play it safe and make a 150 pound screen these are you know obviously these are money making ventures you know they're not there to kind of tick some kind of cultural box and it is incredibly frustrating there you know a multiplex by the very nature of its being has a multitude of screens and film is a wonderfully varied medium and a, a never-ending amount of niches therein so I think it's why I find multiplexes such soulless places. They attract punters who are kind of shepherded in and out as quickly as possible. 
and there's a kind of no social interaction element to them whatsoever and you know compare that with the kind of the aforementioned corner house where it has a kind of a bar and a, an actual genuine social scene where you can meet up with like-minded people and you know i partake in the monthly film quiz there which is kind of you know people who you frequent the building and go and watch films there and then you become quite good friends with some of the regular puns it's a, it's a nice kind of communal environment and I, you know multiplexes don't celebrate film they simply enable people to view them in an industrial scale and yeah i guess it's kind of old mannish and kind of sneery of me but every time i go to them a small piece of me wants to leave as soon as i arrive and you see the kind of the feckless dregs of idiots parading excitedly discussing the next load of marvel bollocks and they're going to see a couple and invariably you ended up getting sat next to a couple who are chomping on their plastic cheese sauce with their nachos and slurping their teeth napalm coke and yeah it really annoys me you know and coupled with that when you do leave you have a blaring lcd screen showing me the next game of thrones rip off and I find it a really kind of frustrating, I tell quite a frustrating and horrible experience. It's like Tesco's on a Saturday morning, minus the chorus of screaming children. And thirdly, I think this point that kind of ties into something I said earlier, but there's a misconception that somehow documentaries are actually more like learning experiences than they are enjoyable ones. And again, this is baffling to me because how can seeing a story or a subject you are not familiar with be a bad thing? How can educating yourself be something that doesn't interest you. you know, take again, take for example Ken Burns. I'm only you know relatively new to his films, but one of the reasons I, I love them is because they're so interesting. The topics he talks about. I mean, the, the one that stood out particularly was um, Lewis and Clark and the, the Journey of Discovery, and it was just a fascinating film. And by the end of it, because it was so well made, I mean, I actually had tears in my eyes, and you know, I had this kind of wonderful cinematic learning experience. And I think it kind of comes down to the fact that we, our patience and I think, our, and, and concentration levels, I think are falling as, as cinema artists. I've now banned myself from having my mobile phone in, this, in the room with me when I, when I watch films. And purely because it's just, it's just the easy thing to do, an apparent lull in the film or something like that, or perhaps if you're not kind of enjoying it as much, you can just check your Facebook or just have a look at something. And it's completely stupid, there's no need to do it. So, and I think this again, this is one of the issues, is because perhaps we haven't, you know, as a cinema, as, as a generation of film goes, perhaps we just don't have the the capacity to invest so much time and effort into documentaries, especially, you know, when you compare, you know, when you look at something like a Marvel film and how generic they are and how it's kind of just action, 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 you never get a chance to kind of not... To, to breathe as it were and a lot of documentary films you need to kind of digest a lot of information I just don't think a lot of people can take it and, and this was kind of echoed in a conversation I had with someone at work who said when they when they watch films they just want to switch off and yeah you know I'm all up for mindless fun times but sometimes surely there comes a point where you're just switching off you sort of any kind of sentient being would yearn for more and Letterbox is again a good source of intel and answers perhaps because a recent film, I, I went on someone's list the other day and it was a, a films I've seen in 2014 and it was a pitiful selection of just mediocrity and dross and I just thought, you know, you could, you could see that the person who had, who had kind of compiled this list had, had just gone to the cinema to watch, well again, just Marvel films and 
kind of big budget action. I just thought, you know, where, where's the desire? And it just seemed really kind of indicative of me that this was a person who probably wouldn't be able to watch anything more than loud Michael Bay style cinema. And you know, this person is um, quite a prolific uh, poster on certain Facebook groups and even has their own podcast. And it's just like, well, and harbors desires to become a film critic and I, it just seemed really bizarre to me to be honest with you and again I'm, I appreciate the fact it might sound like I'm being quite snobby but I think perhaps we need to kind of get over that really and start being a bit, a bit more film snobbies and kind of standing up really for this kind of other cinema that no one seems to be very interested in and I think documentaries are more important than ever at the moment because I think one of the, the the glaring issues with modern journalism is quality um, and genuine investigative journalists who are who, who don't really kind of come in at things with a political angle but just report on what is there and try and kind of provoke debate and shine a light into areas where you know perhaps we are completely ignorant to. I mean, um, John Pilger, I kind of yeah, a story documentary filmmaker of mine, made Utopia last year, which was a shocking and depressing look at Aboriginal life in Australia. And we also had the kind of the excellent Blackfish about animal cruelties at SeaWorld and Jeremy Scahill's Dirty Wars and expose of the war on terror and what it actually entails. And all of these films provoked debate and all of them asked questions and promoted discourse that seems to be profoundly lacking in mainstream media and what I think I, I'd like to make this film touch was the lack of politics in them they were they were as scathing to the right as they were to the left and I think especially in the case of Dirty Wars and Utopia and that's what we need we don't need these kind of mouthpieces for, for political parties making films I mean I remember kind of um kind of ITV, the Cook Report, I mean, with Roger Cook. I mean, this was a, an investigative reporter. He, he even went to Yugoslavia and demanded answers from a Serb war criminal called Arkan. I mean, this guy was completely, f without fear, would go and kind of knock on the door of gangsters and money launderers. And where are these people anymore? It's been replaced with absolute crap. I think we need it. And, you know, I, I want to see more films. Um, being made about the establishment. I mean, yes, I have seen um, Dinesh D'Souza's Obama's America, and yes, it is absolutely fucking terrible. Um, but hey, at least he was trying, um, but also totally failing to make something that promoted some kind of discussion. Um, it did, it did debate, bring about some discussion, and mainly people like well, Glenn Beck and other such fucking idiots. But you know, I, I'm all, I'm all, I'm, I'm welcome to these types of films as long as they're they're done well. And the other area which I think I'm really excited for documentaries to go in is kind of modern technology. You know, let's face facts. I mean, 4K and 3D, they're going to be here to stay. And whilst recently um, revisiting Baraka and Samsara, I couldn't help but wonder you know, how good these would look kind of, you know, 4K and 3D IMAX. And I know the BBC has apparently began looking into 4K for its natural history films. And certainly recent Blu-rays of Africa and planet Earth, Frozen Planet are... Um, pretty incredible um, experiences, and um, I would be interested to see what the, what they could do with 4K and 3D technology. And I, unlike many, I don't kind of have this aversion to the role technology needs to play in filmmaking. I, I yeah, I've, I said before, I do enjoy 3D. Um, I, I'm, 
I, I kind of go back to that Avatar episode where, well, when I talked about Avatar and, and, and say what you want about that film and the message stuff, it is still visually an incredible achievement and one that was rendered so well in 3D. And that's what I'm excited to see where it can go. And I hope kind of like Ron Frick and the, you know, the, the guys that made Bracken Summer are plotting something similar, although they can carry on making films on 70mm because they do look pretty stunning. But, you know, and I'd also like to see organisations such as kind of the BBC and ITV and PBS kind of using online digital stores more to sell their back catalogue. And I, I recently contacted the BBC about an excellent series called People Centuries and would it ever get a release and was surprised that they had no intention of releasing it on DVD. It was released on VHS, but you know, who, who's going to buy the VHSs? And it didn't make any sense to me because they were saying it was quite a big series and that it would cost a lot of money to kind of get it to DVD production. And what I can't understand is they must still have the files there, you know, stored digitally. It's been, it's been shown on BBC4 relatively recently. You know, and, and how hard would it be just to upload it to iTunes? Um, and there just seems to be so many organisations that are sitting on a wealth of material that you can easily find it on YouTube and torrents. And, you, you know, People Centuries, it's had something like 100,000 downloads on torrent. And it just genuinely baffles me that you don't get more people jumping on board, more, more organisations, sorry, jumping on board and using it. And hopefully they will. I mean, I've noticed BBC kind of iTunes pages, you know, they've, they've got more content on there. But... I, I think it's time to really kind of look through those archives and get as much out as possibly can because there's, there's certain series and things like that which I've, I've heard so much about and just n never had the chance to see. But above all, I want people to watch and discuss documentaries more because I think it is a fascinating subject and good filmmaking will suck you in and there are so many great works that people will never bother to watch and it's a pity and indeed it's one driven by ignorance to a large degree and again this narrow interpretation of what cinema constitutes and it's expressed in box office you know niche films and projects will become harder to find and you know funding as well you know if no one's watching these types of films they will find it harder and harder to get funding and we will simply kind of our, our the variety of films will get more and more narrow and i think in kind of times of austerity this is something which uh, is a genuine concern for me i know in the science sample i did say yeah there's more kind of documentary festivals than ever but i mean i they're conspicuous in their absence up here i know it's i mean i haven't noticed one in manchester for quite some time and it would be a shame if this genre was to kind of fade even more into the shadows Okay, so on to then the Sight and Sound Greatest Documentaries poll. And I, I, just to reiterate what I said at the top of the program is that I think that you have to take these kind of things with a pinch of salt and use them as a vehicle for discussion and debate, which is what I want to do now. And the debates were, the polls were divided into two, which is filmmakers and the critics. And one of the first things I, I think to kind of make completely clear is the fact that Sight and Sound didn't actually define what was eligible as a documentary and what was and what wasn't and I think this is a very very important thing to say because think about documentary as a term and it, it's so broad if you think about the term sport for example I mean today I've watched um, the Velta cycling and you think how much cycling has in common with something like badminton and the two are completely different but they both come under this loose banner of sport and documentary is kind of the same I think what you know what what does constitute a documentary film is very much open debate, and especially in a poll like this, is if if you think, for example, I don't know, Ken Burns's National Parks, 
do you if that's one of your favourite documentaries, do you kind of put it in a subcategory of TV documentary or film category? And they, they, they've, they even state that one of the point, why the reasons why they didn't do that was because they wanted kind of the, uh, the critics and the filmmakers to try and kind of help them guide towards this definition of what documentary was. And um, in a way, I can kind of see that's why it's a good idea, but I'll kind of get on to the effect I think that has had on the poll in a little bit. But... There are limitations to the poll as well. Um, it's a very Anglo-centric poll, those, those people who were, who were actually asked to contribute, and only 30% of those who were asked were female. Um, so I think that the lack of direction from sight and sound is really reflected in the films chosen. And some of the lists that I saw, I, they struck me as very confused lists in many respects and raised some questions of what constitutes documentary. Um, and the results, I don't, I didn't really surprise me in both the filmmakers and the critics. Them, a lot of them, they kind of really steered away from television series, and there was only kind of a few that that they were actually mentioned. And um, I was expecting things like The World at War to be mentioned a lot more, and um, it, it it really didn't. And um, I did get the distinct impression as well that many of these lists were constructed with a view to standing out, and by that I mean I honestly believe that there was an air of exclusivity about some of them that suggested that those compiling them knew full well they were going to be published in a respected film journal. And of course, I can't really prove that. Um, it was simply my interpretation. I might be completely wrong. And I'm not entirely sure, perhaps, if it was a case that I am, I was I slightly kind of, like, as a self-confessed kind of massive fan of documentary filmmaking, perhaps I was a little bit kind of, my nose was kind of put out of joint a little bit by the fact that I hadn't heard of so many of the films. But I got the impression that these lists were there to impress, and again, I can only reiterate that that's my interpretation. Um, I, I really beseech you really to pick it, pick up this episode, and, you know, have a look for, for yourself, and you know, come to your own conclusions on that. But um, you know, because another thing as well, I know I mean, I've, I've talked about Ken Burns on, on this episode, but there was only one mention of him, and that really, really did surprise me. And perhaps it's the focus, and but you know, I say it's an Anglo-centric. Um, list but I mean you would have thought I, I thought perhaps that you know someone as prolific as him w- would be on the list and just to have one mention of him in one person's list and I think it was for the series baseball anyway I, I perhaps thought it was the focus on American history and uh, overall television documentaries seem to be largely ignored and I think that comes down to the fact that people just didn't think to add TV series to them and I also got the impression, perhaps, with someone like Ken Burns, perhaps he's not kind of highbrow enough. Um, I think he's kind of like the Steven Spielberg, perhaps, of documentary filmmaking. Uh, there's a sentimentality to his films, perhaps, which just doesn't wash off on people. I don't know. Um, but either way, I thought he was going to be better presented. And the same can go for someone like Alex Gibney. Um, perhaps I'm being a little... Perhaps I have a, a slight kind of... Uh, affiliation to his films you know that kind of loyalty perhaps but again you know to me he represents the best in documentary filmmaking and to see him so conspicuous in his absence did did generally surprise me and I, I guess that kind of comes back to the fact that I, I thought that uh and just to kind of pick up on the kind of the absence of television documentaries in this um I think people have taken the term documentary film and taken it in its purest sense and I think they've just gone with documentaries that have had uh, theatrical releases and I think this really comes from the 
the lack of guidance from sight and sound. Um, I would be interested if they had said to people, right, do your top 10 documentary films, your top 10 documentary series. Perhaps that might have worked. I don't know. Um, it's certainly how I, I, I would have thought about it. And if I was going to compile you know, a similar list, I would have perhaps gone down that route. However, uh, we, we get what we get, as it were. And in a way, I think this is a lost opportunity to discuss television documentaries and you talk about the kind of the auteurs of the directing and producing world within television and talk about those golden ages from you know the early 70s and, and, and it seemed like a little bit of a missed opportunity to me and one I was a little bit disappointed with I, I would hope that one day perhaps Sight and Sound would revisit this or perhaps for the next time they do this kind of give a little bit more kind of indication as to what what, what constitutes what and kind of say right you know let's look at the, the the television documentary medium because I think it's such an important one and it's you know, the, the sheer wealth of television documentaries is is breathtaking and I, I just I just feel there's been a little bit um and I was just a little bit surprised and disappointed as I said that we, we didn't get more of this but again I noticed as well and I, I noticed in the top 10 films poll um that it, it was quite apparent to me that time we we need time for for a film or a document to come out and we need a certain passage of time for us to really kind of digest it and there wasn't many films that had been made in the past 15 years that had made people's lists and in a way I kind of understand that you know, a film comes out and something like I, th I think something if, if, if you think about how long it took for kind of people to appreciate Citizen Kane and you know, obviously like Vertigo and things like that, it's not that kind of immediate effect that people kind of watch these films and go, right, you know, these are up there. And I know I've done it this year, especially with Boyhood and Under the Skin, where I feel quite confident in saying that I think I've seen films, which are some of the most important ever made. And, but I also understand the need for perspective. And I felt this, this was again reflected in this list. There wasn't many modern films at all, and something like I, I would I, I would expect in if say they did this every ten years, I would expect in another ten years something like The Act of Killing to make these types of lists. Uh, another brilliant film I thought um, I, I've seen recently was um, Client Nine: The Rise and Fall of Elliot Spitzer, and I think that might be another one which comes into it. This kind of it will really be I think a, um, a kind of a monument to the culture of the modern era you have someone like Elliot Spitzer who was really against the kind of the underhand and disgusting techniques of trading companies and major corporations who kind of was the architect of his down his own downfall by kind of sleeping with prostitutes but you have someone like Sarah Palin for example who is was a politician now this kind of public figure who unfortunately people seem to kind of listen to and the difference between the two is so is so great and yet one is kind of very much in the public eye and the other one isn't and I think a film like Client 9 The Rise and Fall of Earth's Bits will be something that people will be inclined to kind of look back on and say I think it gives a quite a good indication of kind of the political sociological makeup of of of, of the past few years but again it might not do I don't know but I, I, I you know I have a particular affinity to that film Okay, so on to the lists anyway, and this is the critics poll. And joint ninth were Grey Gardens and Don't Look Back. And having seen both of those, again, thoroughly enjoyable films, I especially like Don't Look Back. Grey Gardens is one which um, I sort of feel I should enjoy a lot more than I do, um, but 
I can see why people love it. I mean, don't get me wrong, I've, I've watched it a couple of times now and I, I do really like it. However, I, it, it's not one of my favourites and certainly with Don't Look Back, that's, I think, D.A. Pennebaker's one of my all-time favourite filmmakers anyway and seeing kind of Bob Dylan in these early days is, is fascinating to me and I'm a huge fan of Bob Dylan's work so this is really kind of a joy. Um, the second one was The Gleaners and I, and this was made in 2000 by Agnes Varga, and I've not seen it at all, so I, I really, really should um, kind of pick that up, and seeing it mentioned in these lists has really spurred me on to see it. Um, number seven was Nanook of the North by Robert Flaherty, and um, if ever there's an argument to be made about fakery in film, this really is the benchmark, because there is always a degree of fakery in documentary films indeed you know i think it's very, to say that documentary captures reality is, is is something of an oxymoron i don't think it's possible to capture reality when you put a camera on someone because instantly their behavior changed but Fatty was such a charlatan in many respects he wanted nanook to conform to a very western ideal of what life in the polar ice caps would look like and he had him do all kinds of things that he didn't do just to kind of make him look more kind of uh, I, I suppose it's that kind of that, that idea of the noble savage, and he wanted him to look a certain way for, for Western audiences. And I think it's impossible to take the nuke of the North seriously. I, I think it's a, it's very much a, for when it was made in the 1920s, it's it's a piece of contemporary tourism, to kind of fit an ideal for Western audiences. Don't get me wrong; it's a very very interesting film. I just think it's. Knowing what I know about it, I find it quite hard to take it seriously. Um, number six was Chronicle of the Summer, which I've talked about um, with my Criterion episode rep, um, episodes. Those those Criterion episodes will be making a comeback. Um, I, I got so far behind on them, by the way, I, I just couldn't kind of keep up. But they will be making a comeback, so don't worry about that. But I have I've spoken about Chronicle of the Summer before, and um, yeah, I absolutely love this film. Um, I, I saw it at university. It's been something I've seen. I'm very pleased to own it on um, Blu-ray on the Criterion Collection, and uh, yeah really really enjoy it and now number five was the thin blue line and this was an Errol Morris film which I'm sure many of you have seen if you haven't it's a fascinating tale and it actually um, managed to get someone kind of exonerated from a crime they'd been convicted of murder and it managed to get kind of this film managed to kind of actually get this person off and um, I've always been really divided on the thin blue line um I always felt the reconstructions in it were slightly, uh, they sort of took me out of the story actually, I found them quite um, clunky and um, it's been a while since I watched it so I might go back to it now. Uh, number four was Night and Fog, number four was Night and Fog, um, Elaine Reness's 1955 film about the Holocaust, I own the criterion of this, an incredible film, incredibly powerful film. Um, I guess I'll talk a little bit more about it when I get to number two. But number three was Sans Soleil, Chris Marker, and I've never seen this, and I feel ashamed to say that, uh, given the fact that it was so prevalent over all these lists. Um, I am going to check it out, and of course I own the criteria of that, but I've never watched it, so shame on me, but I will get around to it. Number two was Shower, which obviously kind of revisits the same kind of um, theme as Night and Fog, and Shower is, to me, one of the greatest... Not one of the greatest documentaries, but one of the greatest films ever made. It's a staggering film in so many regards and very one that's very pertinent to me I managed to visit Auschwitz a few years ago and um, I wouldn't say I've developed some sort of like morbid fascination with the place but the subject and everything about it just really kind of beggars belief and I, I still 
watching these films, just hearing these testimonies, it, it's still it's so hard to get your, your mind around what actually happened. And I think in some ways show a kind of give such a human element to it. And uh, yeah, I, I just love it. And I, I know it's come out on Blu-ray um, on Criterion. And I really, really like to see it reflected in Master Cinema because I know it was released, of course, by them. And number one was Dieter Vertov's Man with a Movie Camera. And again, a very strange... You know, is to call this a documentary, I don't know whether it's a documentary or, an, or a kind of like an experiment in film, I don't know. Perhaps the fact that it doesn't have um, a fictional narrative thread to it, but it's definitely one of those kind of like very grey area, perhaps, you know, how we kind of classify and look at this film. But I love Man with a Movie Camera. It's just a complete joygasm of a film. It's really kind of about the sheer pleasure you can take from filmmaking and, um, yeah, who's to argue with it? So... On to the filmmakers uh, top 10 and I suppose kind of a bit strange but we had three at number eight um, which was Nanak of the North again, Men of Aaron which was another one which uh, you have to kind of take a certain creative um, poetic license I suppose is the word with Men of Aaron because again it was heavily um, fictionalised and lots of recreation uh, can you say it's a really a documentary or can you say it's another piece of kind of cultural tourism again I think it's a very uh, a kind of a big debate and we had Don't Look Back um, come back into this uh, number six was Titicat Follies and I've never heard anything about this film um, but having heard so much about it on this list I really do want to watch it now but again never seen it number six was Salesman and uh, me and Joachim have spoken about that on the Master Cinema. And it's, again, it's another brilliant Pennebaker film. I love Salesman. It's absolutely brilliant. It uh, never fails to kind of amuse and move me in so many ways. Number four was Shower and Night and Fog. Number three, The Thin Blue Line again. Number two, Sans Soleil. And number one, which, uh, of course, we had with the critics poll, was Man with a Movie Camera. So there were a great deal of similarities between the two polls. Some slightly, some 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 minor differences, I guess. But um, I was pleased for one in the fact that there's a few films in there that I hadn't seen of, and I need to see Sansley and Titicat Follies right away. And I think there's a few other people's lists which I was incredibly interested in, and I need to kind of tuck into though. So you know, like any list in this film, you know, you can't argue with them being there. You can probably think of other ones that you would like to have there. It is what it is, and I think. They should be taken in this in the spirit of, of how we've seen them and you know kind of get out there and uh, pick a few of these films up and kind of try and make up our own minds. Um, perhaps one question I, I did, perhaps one question we might be asking, well, what would be mine? And I think I'm going to save that for another day um, because looking at these lists, I think I've got some viewing to do. I, I really do. And I... I as much as, as, as I said before, that I love to think of myself as a huge documentary fan I think there's enough on this list to kind of give me a good year's worth of viewing and then to kind of come back and perhaps get a kind of a slightly bigger picture so we might going to save that for another day but overall this is another um, episode of Science Sound uh, sorry another edition of Science Sound that I really enjoyed and it's I can I can see myself going back to this and kind of ticking through those films and uh, hopefully um, talking about a few of them on later episodes but definitely pick it up and if you haven't subscribe to Sight and Sound, do do it because it's one of the few film uh, publications that I I really just absolutely love getting. I always make kind of some, I always look forward to it coming through the letterbox and always make uh, 
a day free so I can kind of sit there, read it and digest it. And it's a fantastic magazine. The, the You can go through all their online archives as well. So do subscribe, do get on to it. But that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames. Because I hope you've enjoyed it. Let me know your favourite kind of documentary films and kind of perhaps we can exchange some ideas. So if you want to find out more about me, you can go to the 24framescast.blogspot.com. Um, click on the social links page if you want to see all my social accounts because I've got absolutely hundreds now, like Instagram, Twitter and all that kind of thing. So you can find them all there. So many thanks for listening. I'll be in contact soon. Goodbye. <laughs>